Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the 1956 novel by James Baldwin, Giovanni's Room. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We also have some content warnings before we get started. Uh, there will be some discussion of misogyny and domestic abuse, uh, alcoholism, homophobia and transphobia, uh, death and execution, and self-harm and suicide. There are also uses of homophobic slurs in quotes. It's a pretty heavy episode. Yeah, it's a pretty heavy book. Yeah. This is not one of the fun, lighthearted ones. Sorry, team. If you would like uh, more lighthearted content on this podcast, uh, this was in fact a Patreon episode where our patrons got to vote, uh, and sign up to our Patreon if you would like uh, different uh, choices. <laughs> I'll also just note that we're obviously uh, a person down on what we usually have. Uh, unfortunately, Eli is ill, and we didn't have time to get Irene to read a book with, you know, no day's notice. He doesn't have COVID. He doesn't have COVID, fortunately. Uh, so before we get into the novel itself, I want to talk briefly about James Baldwin first. Uh, I want to leave open the possibility of doing a full episode on him down the line, um, but obviously some context is important for discussing his works. Yeah, I know like three facts about James Baldwin, so this might drastically change how I understand Giovanni's room. <laughs> <laughs> this will be interesting. Um, so Baldwin was born in 1924 in New York. Uh, he never knew his biological father and had a strained relationship with his intensely religious stepfather. After years toiling in odd jobs and struggling to find himself or establish a career in America, uh, in large part because of the oppressive racism in America in general, he moved to Paris where he spent nine years as an itinerant writer, publishing several essays and eventually his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, a semi-autobiographical exploration of his relationship with his stepfather. According to writer Suzanne Stryker, when he was writing Giovanni's Room, he felt that the effects of racism in the United States would never allow him to be seen simply as a writer, and he feared that being tagged as gay would mean he couldn't be a writer at all. Mm -hmm. So yeah, emigrating to Europe to escape the racism of the US was a common tactic of African-American writers at the time, although Europe was quite obviously not free of its own prejudices. And Bourbon spent the first part of his time in Paris in predominantly white literary circles, but later found a community of African-American expats. During his time, he explored his sexuality, had several fraught relationships, and was depressed and at times suicidal during this period. All of which is relevant if you have read Giovanni's Room, because it's very, very comparable to the experience of our main character, David, in many ways. Yeah, with the notable difference being that David is white. Yes. Which I'm sure we're going to discuss. We absolutely are. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot more to Baldwin's life, but uh, what I've just given you gets us to the point where he was writing Giovanni's Room in the kind of mid-50s, and I feel contextualizes a great deal of what happens in the book. The novel was a tough sell for a young black author with only one novel behind him, and he was turned down by American publisher Alfred Knopf because editors feared legal action over the homosexual content. He'd previously acceded to demands to cut a gay ending from Go Tell It on the Mountain, hmm. because Go Tell It on the Mountain is very autobiographical and he himself is queer. So. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he wasn't going to be censored twice, and after being told that the novel would ruin his reputation as a leading young black writer and being advised to burn the manuscript, uh, he eventually found a British publisher willing to print the book. 
So do you know what the legal situation was in, like, the USA at the time around, like, publishing something like this, which is explicitly gay? Yeah, so I think a lot of the concerns from the publishers were that it would be legally labelled as pornographic. Mm, okay, yeah. Yeah, and I think there's not really explicit <laughs> sex scenes in there. Like, you know, it's clear that he has sex with men mm. and women, but yeah, it's not pornographically described. It just kind of happens. Yeah. If you're getting titillated by this book, uh, I have some concerns. <laughs> Frankly, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, this, even the sex scenes are pretty grim. Mm. So what is Giovanni's Room? Uh, I enjoyed academic Kemp Williams' summary of the plot the best uh, for its balance of describing the events and the mindset of the characters without getting too much into subjective analysis. Here's what Williams says. Giovanni's Room consists narratively of one long flashback. When we meet David, the protagonist, at the beginning of the novel, we are actually at the end of the action with David describing what has happened to bring him to this time and place. He's an expatriate living in France, and the story is immediately imbued with a sense of mystery. Why is he there? Who is Giovanni, and why is he about to be executed? Why does David feel responsible for what has happened to Giovanni, and why is David's ex-fiancée on a boat back to the United States? As David relates his story, we gradually find out the answers to these questions. David is in France because he's running away from his past. He has had a homosexual experience, has vowed never to indulge in such acts again, and, calling homosexuality the bulldog in his own backyard, he has moved across the ocean. He is ultimately unsuccessful, however, as he notes that the yard has grown smaller and the bulldog bigger. In Europe, David meets another American, Hella, and begins a romantic relationship with her. We learn later that she has sensed a problem in the relationship, and so goes off to tour Spain while she contemplates David's offer of marriage. While Hella is in Spain, David meets Giovanni, an Italian expatriate who has left his country also fleeing a dark past. In this case, the past is a stillborn child and a wife he no longer loves. David meets Giovanni in the gay bar where Giovanni is working as a bartender. David has been brought there by Jacques, who David describes as contemptible and despicable. He is only connected with Jacques, who is merely an acquaintance, in order to borrow money. Later, David moves in with Giovanni into Giovanni's room on the outskirts of Paris. Over the next few months, they engage in a passionate relationship which ultimately is one-sided. David cannot cope with his homosexuality and leaves Giovanni when Hella returns to Paris. Giovanni becomes distraught over this abandonment, and when he is sexually accosted by his employer, pronounced to the best of my ability, Guillaume, he kills him. <laughs> he is tried and sentenced to death by the guillotine. David feels guilty for what has happened to Giovanni, thinking that had he stayed with him, Giovanni's tragedy would have been averted. He and Hella leave Paris for a house in the south of France. David comes to realise, however, that he cannot remain with Hella. After he disappears for several days, she finds him in a gay bar in Nice in the company of a sailor, and she leaves him. And that's the story of Giovanni's room. It's a very simple story. Not much actually happens. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of description of, like, the people and their emotions mm. and theorising about their, like histories and love affairs and you know david's a real like people watcher he loves to project <laughs> his yeah. own insecurities and his own problems onto other people yeah that that's definitely true it's not just david's introspection about himself but it's david's imagining everyone else's introspection as well yeah which is ultimately a reflection of david yeah absolutely yeah um, and i feel like that's quite clear in the text yeah. that that's what Baldwin is doing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. So yeah, as we said, the plot as it is is very simple, but it's the character of David that draws you in, knowing how things will end from the opening and seeing the journey that took him there. Uh, we hear of his first gay hookup with a friend as a teen, and then the way he kept himself in constant motion to avoid that kind of attachment developing again. I thought the way that Baldwin describes this 
in the novel where he says even constant motion of course does not prevent an occasional mysterious drag a drop like an airplane hitting an air pocket was like really fantastically Mm. evocative of that like closeted queer experience where like a moment of breaking out of the closet is exciting but also you get that feeling of dread yeah Um, so david and there's no real getting around this is pretty awful yeah He's cynical to the bone. He understands all men and women to be, like, constantly flirting with each other. Uh, And that's kind of really the only lens through which he sees everyone Mm. a lot of the time. You know, there's quite a lot of misogyny presented in this book. Ooh, um, yeah. (laughs) From both David and Giovanni in particular. I would say and Hella, too. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. true, absolutely. Later on, yeah. As an example, when he refers to Giovanni's demise, he posits that he might have been better off if he'd stayed down there in his little village in Italy and planted his olive trees and had a lot of children and beaten his wife. Yeah, and he has a conversation with Giovanni about, like, whether women want their husbands to beat them, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really a book about, I mean, obviously it's a book about homosexuality and it's a book about many things, but it's also a book about toxic masculinity because, like, David's really hung up on the idea of, like, being a real man and what it means to be a real man and how he feels like for him that's undermined by being gay Mm. but he has strong opinions on how every other man is achieving or not achieving that too (laughs) yeah which i think are you know based in his own insecurities most of the time yeah yeah definitely and i think that brings us pretty neatly to the kind of gay bar scene Mm -hmm. that um david inhabits and we spend a lot of the first part of the novel in I just, the first thing I want to note is that I was like, oh, uh, Le Four, <laughs> which, yeah. uh, you know, were the, the sort of like the fairies. Yeah. Like, that's not the literal translation, but it's. That's the vibe. That's the vibe. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, takes me back to uh, one of the very first Queer Fiction episodes, The Birdcage, uh, which was, of course, originally a French play titled La Cage Al Four. Again, apologies for my French pronunciation. It's not good. I know that. don't come for us don't come for us i've studied one language in my life and it was german so yeah which has like the opposite pronunciation rules to french (laughs) you say all the letters yeah absolutely wild (laughs) but yeah what we see in these kind of gay bar scenes is that david shows his disdain um Mm. for you know the fairies and the queens and the cross dresses he compares one of them to a monkey eating their own excrement yeah. Which is just incredibly uncalled for. <laughs> it is. Yeah, he's really he's really awful in the way he describes these men. And I think, once again, it's all about gender. It's all about masculinity. There's the folds, which are like the effeminate young men, basically, and David is so scathing of them. And he says at one point, like, these men are trying to pick up men. I don't understand why any man would sleep with them, because if a man wanted to sleep with a woman, why wouldn't he sleep with a real woman? Mm. These people are basically just failed men and failed women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's it's a particular kind of disdain, right? That that disdain that the man who sleeps with men holds for these like fairies. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, it's the distancing yourself from homosexuality. Like, oh yeah, I'm gay, but I'm a man who sleeps with men. Mm. These men are the women. Yeah. Yeah. Which we've spoken about in a few different episodes. I'm pretty sure it came up in the Paris is Burning episode where Mm. we talked about the different kinds of uh, gender roles that existed in the ball scene and how, like, those gender roles included roles for, you know, men who were flamboyantly and effeminately Mm. gay versus men who were, like, kind of straight-laced and you wouldn't be thought of as gay in day-to-day life and could kind of, quote-unquote, pass and the kind of tension between those groups. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that David, we see, is really hung up on as well, like whether or not he can pass as straight. Mm. Like that's a big, like we have scenes where he's like walking down the street and another man's looking at him and he's like, is he looking at me because he knows I'm gay? Mm. And he's like really hung up in his head about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that's like one lens through which this bar scene can be seen. There's mm. also the lens of age and specifically the characters of Jacques and Guillaume, who David despises yeah. um, largely because he is very concerned about becoming them. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, like, ageing into the lifestyle that they lead where they're constantly pursuing younger men and debasing themselves in order to get those younger men to sleep with them. Yeah. Um, effectively bribing them in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, particularly those early scenes between Jacques and David where they kind of snipe at each other. This is something I obviously usually find, like, kind of tiresome cliche. Yeah. I think Baldwin finds the kind of core of it, which is that, like, fleeting nature of their relationships um, that a lot of these men experience because of the circumstance and the lifestyle that they're forced to live on the Mm. edge of society, um, where it's clearly, like, really precarious, they're constantly running out of money, they're constantly going and borrowing money from each other, and yeah. that layer of socioeconomic tension and then also the tension of age and how to kind of live openly, hmm. all of that kind of combines to the point where you're like, yeah, they really are just like, you know, sniping at each other as like negative stereotype gay men way. But also what else are they supposed to do in this situation? Yeah, I think generally I find those depictions of gay men like really tiresome, but I think Baldwin makes it work because he gets beyond the stereotype to being like well who are these men and why do they treat each other this way Mm. and like it's really obvious that david treats jacques this way because of david's own internalized homophobia and fear of becoming like you said becoming jacques Mm. and jacques treats david this way because he sees david as kind of rejecting like david's really disdainful of everyone around him he's rejecting this whole scene Mm. and distancing himself from it even as he's a part of it and, you know, no wonder Jacques is going to be scathing to him because David hates Jacques and he doesn't hide that. Yeah, yeah. And, and David constantly criticises the performativity of the scene. Mm. But, like, he himself is performing this role within the scene and he talks about it, how yeah. it's, it's all an act and how he's sitting there with Jacques knowing that Jacques wants to sleep with him but, like, waiting for Jacques to make the first move and knowing that Jacques can't make the first move. Yeah. And just kind of toying with him. And it's like, this is not a healthy way to treat the people in your life. I found it very interesting where somebody in that scene, I can't remember who it is, might be Jacques, kind of says to David, so like, what about you? Who are you interested in you? And he says, I'm queer for girls. And he's kind of like saying, oh, you know, in this subculture where gay is the norm, no, 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 I'm not that, guys. I'm not that. I just happen to be here. I'm into Mm. women. It's like, David, you don't believe that. And nobody in the room with you believes that. Mm. And it's all this performance that he's putting on to kind of protect his own insecurities yeah yeah i did find it interesting on that note that they are in this scene where pretty much everyone's queer Mm -hmm. and everyone's very open about being queer like Mm -hmm. they're in gay bars they're picking up men that's what's happening and it's also presented more generally in the novel that like france is much more accepting of that than or europe even is much more accepting of that than america like david has arguments with giovanni where david's like it's a crime we can't be together and giovanni's like it's not a crime and david's like in my country it's a crime Mm. but at the same time the whole scene is really like 
eaten up from the inside by this self-loathing and this kind of fear of societal judgment. Even as much as they're like, oh yeah, France is so free. You can just be gay here, you know, everyone's just at these queer bars. Uh, yeah, so we'll get into that a bit more later when it comes to the ending, because there's a lot of stuff in the last probably 30 or 40 pages that deals with the homophobia that does exist in France that is maybe more subtle than it is in America. It's still mm. equally damning, and, you know, there's a reason why a lot of these men are poor. Yeah, um, yeah. And the ones who aren't are, like, you know, constantly terrified and, like, kind of using the fact that they have a little bit of wealth to exert a lot of control over these young men. Yeah. There's a lot about class going on that's bar scene that we haven't even mentioned as well yeah 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 um and i think we yeah i think that'll be better better suited when we get back to the bar scene at the end of the story yeah yeah so i think the the last thing i want to say about this kind of first section and again we might discuss this a bit more later but there's this idea that you know they've got these kind of fleeting relationships but not just fleeting but kind of filled with shame and self-loathing mm. and there's a specific thing where they make their sex dirty by perceiving it as such. Mm, yeah, I think Jacques explicitly says that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Jacques implores David to find something beautiful with Giovanni instead, to not think of hooking up with him as dirty or deviant or whatever. And yeah. is sort of like, you. this can be an act of self-healing. Mm. And that's something that's really, that comes across in both David's uh, first relationship with Joey, yeah, um, and then later in his relationship with Giovanni, is that potential for self-healing and self-growth mm. um, that is ultimately not realised because David can't get past his own internalised homophobia. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really interesting thing that Jacques makes that point as well, because, like, as we said, David's really scared of becoming Jacques, mm. and David sees that the way he can prevent himself becoming Jacques is by being a straight man, essentially. Mm. He's like, I mm. either am a gay man and I go on this path to being this rich man who's paying younger boys for sex, basically, mm. younger men for sex. I don't know how old those men are. To And then the alternative to that is, like, I become a straight man, I marry my fiancé, Hella, we go back to America, we have babies, and I leave that life behind. And Jacques's the one being like, that's not the choice. There's a third choice where you're gay and you're happy with that and you don't disdain that and therefore you don't become like me and you don't repress your sexuality. And I think the whole book is about the fact that David doesn't know there's a third path. Yeah. I mean, and I think a third path in several different ways. Maybe a fourth we'll, path. <laughs> as we'll kind of get into when we potentially talk about a bit of bisexuality. Yeah. Yeah, and this uh, I read a great piece from uh, Yasmin Y. de Gout, who described how the reader, like Baldwin, is forced to oscillate between two irreconcilable interpretations of the nature of homosexuality. And she points to a quote from Baldwin, uh, which reads, The argument, for example, as to whether or not homosexuality is natural seems to me completely pointless. Pointless because I really do not see what difference the answer makes. It seems clear in any case, at least in the world we know, that no matter what encyclopedias of physiological and scientific knowledge are brought to bear, the answer can never be yes. And one of the reasons for this is that it would rob the normal, who are simply the many, of their necessary sense of security and order. Like, she goes on to then kind of analyse this idea of and I kind of got into it a little bit where, you know, we can talk about homosexuality as a, a sort of self-healing and something mm. that can bring a man to a more complete understanding of his identity and can, you know, um, help him find himself and find a place in the world versus it as being a deviant, particularly homoerotic act, mm. are often portrayed in the novel as being deviant and dirty and yeah. coming from a place of uh, psychological trauma. Like, the fact that um, David and Giovanni both have all this trauma that they're working through mm. uh, is no coincidence and 
uh, she goes into some of, and this is why I'm not sure how, I'm not sure about the intentionality here from Baldwin. Yeah. But how a lot of the ways that homosexuality was being medicalized at that point, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the literature is like directly reflected in how Baldwin presents his characters. Okay. And like the specifics of their backstories are kind uh-huh. of specific points that were made in terms of this is how, this is why we end up with all these homosexuals. Oh, that's really interesting. Like, you know, this is what could make you gay. It could be having, you know, obviously David has like a really troubled relationship with mm. his father who, and his father doesn't play that role that David feels he should have kind of being an authoritative male figure in his life. Mm. Like mm. something like that, Baldwin saying, hey, society says this makes you gay. Let's unpack what's going on there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there's sort of the idea of whether or not, like, what Baldwin is trying to say with that. And I think probably it is just kind of, you know, trying to reckon with those contradictions. Because there's a lot of of his writing on homosexuality, especially, Mm. like, his sort of writing outside of his novels. Yeah. Makes it clear that he himself is wrestling with this. And sometimes he talks about other queer authors Mm. and criticizes them in a way that doesn't really seem to make sense with what he's writing. But then you sort of think about it from the perspective of he's criticizing this aspect of himself oh yeah yeah makes a lot more sense suddenly yeah and i think sometimes we read books expecting them to be saying something about something like okay so what's baldwin saying about the idea that not having an authoritative male figure makes you gay what's baldwin's contention and sometimes people write books that it's like i don't know let's look at that Mm. let's just see what's going on Mm. and he mightn't have come out the other end being like that's what's going on but he's at least looked at a character who's having that experience and being like, well, what might that be like? Mm. How might those things interplay? Yeah. Um, So I want to talk a bit now about Giovanni, who's our other sort of male lead um, in the story and is also kind of a terrible person. Um, (laughs) Are there good people in this book? I don't think so, no. Joey seems nice. (laughs) That's true. That's true. We never get any (laughs) negative things from Joey. Yeah. Um, Because he's in one scene... (laughs) <laughs> and he doesn't really do anything. He's a very passive character. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Giovanni is very distinctly anti-feminist, more so even than David, I would say, um, in terms of how, like, there's a few conversations they have where Giovanni expresses a very anti-feminist point and David's sort of like, oh, well, is that true, though? Not really disagreeing mm. with him, but not, like, being like, hell yeah. Uh, and then Giovanni doubles down and it's like, and I don't think it's necessarily true that David doesn't believe those same things, but David's less willing to kind of go out on a limb on them. Yeah, and I think that's partly depicted as like an American versus European thing. Mm-hmm. That David's coming from a country where, like, you know, there are women like Hella, and obviously there were women having these conversations in Europe as well, but there were w- women like Hella having these conversations about, like, you know, what does it mean to be a woman? Can I have a career and be married as well? Do I need to have children? Like, all that kind of stuff. Do I need to be submissive to my husband? And those are kind of seen as these are these new American ideas. Yeah, so... There's this particular scene that sticks in my mind where Giovanni sort of clearly thinks of women as kind of fickle, unknowable creatures and like Mm. forces of nature who sometimes inhabit his life. And it Mm. seems to be like, he's like, oh, well, I have no real say over it. Yeah. I think particularly, I don't know if you're thinking of the same scene, but there's a moment where sort of David's like, so Giovanni, do you have a woman in your life? And he's like, not at the moment. I'm not interested in women in the moment. And then he says like, Perhaps it is because women are just a little more trouble than I can afford right now. The idea that women are just kind of, you know, emotional and fickle and causing problems and men are perhaps simpler in his eyes. Yeah, I feel like there's also a literal element to that, right? Mm. Um, Where he is poor 
And yeah. the nature of those kind of gay male relationships is that he can be doted on a little bit. Yeah. Um, which is not something that um, traditional heterosexuality allows for, for a man. Yeah, 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 that's true. Um, I was just thinking about, I kind of felt like I had trouble getting my head around the character of Giovanni. I think the thing that threw me was that scene where David has a go at Giovanni and says, you want me to be the woman, you want me to stay home and cook and clean and kiss you when you get home from work and you want to go out and be the man in this relationship. I don't want to be a woman and Giovanni's like, what are you talking about? Neither of us is the woman. Where at the same time, like, so in that situation, as David sees it, he's the woman and Giovanni's the man, but at the same time, Giovanni ends up in these relationships with Guillaume or Jacques, where he's the quote unquote woman he's being doted on by an older man and kind of playing a female role. Mm. And I think I couldn't get my head around that, <laughs> which really is just me falling into the trap that our 1950s society set for me and understanding homosexual relationships, that one person has to be the woman. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, I think, not like super explicit, but I think fairly implied that like Giovanni really performs that role when he is doing that. Mm. Like when he's with David, he doesn't feel that way. He feels like it's a relationship of equals, even, yeah. if, even if David misinterprets that. But it talks about how his fashion changes and he's like, um, specifically, there's a line about him being like dressed better, but looking unhealthier. Yeah, yeah. Um, where it's clear that he's kind of, he feels very trapped in that kind of more, again, quote unquote, feminine role. Yeah. What I found really interesting about Giovanni is that he occupies this role where when he's introduced uh, to David, he kind of tells him a lot of home truths Mm. and like sort of cuts through the crap of society and kind of offers David an escape from his the dreariness of his life, which gave me such strong, like, Manic Pixie Dream Girl vibes. <laughs> yeah, I think when David first meets Giovanni, he's really swept off his feet and it seems like he's going to have this amazing relationship, but then society doesn't make a place for that. I think a lot of the book is about David discovering that that's not all it's cracked up to be like the whole Giovanni's room he's trapped in Giovanni's room is like oh I fell into this relationship that I thought was going to change everything and that I thought was you know this is it and now I'm stuck in this room and there's no place for me in society Mm, mm. yeah and I found that was really interesting and the comparison just kind of struck me and Mm. like I guess there's also you know the trope of like the magical person of color who, like, offers yeah. advice to the protagonist. So ultimately this may just be, like, a trope of storytelling about cis white men where they're <laughs> they're often defined by their kind of ignorance of politics because of their privilege and their ignorance of societal ills because of their privilege. Yeah. And, you know, being a kind of blank slate default character and, you know, um, Baldwin's very explicit about uh, David being that. On the first page of the book, he describes David as, uh, My reflection is tall, perhaps like an arrow. My blonde hair gleams. My face is like a face you have seen many times. I'm a white man. I'm just a guy, is basically the opening. Yeah, and so I'd never really considered putting, you know, uh, those two tropes together and then adding this kind of third trope of this magical gay man who's kind of also a manic pixie dream girl, really. Yeah, Um, yeah. But just in a different gender. You know, it's just kind of, there's the reason for those commonalities is because of the role they play in the story of the Mm. uh, white man rather than anything else. Yeah, like the white man has to define himself by some other who comes in and tells him, you know, their understanding of the world. And he kind of goes, oh, okay, now I have to reframe my understanding of the world. Yeah. 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 Yeah, obviously, uh, this is a fairly dark take on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. (laughs) Um, And we see that David hates Giovanni as much mm. as he loves him in, in a mm. similar way to the way he hates Jacques. 
Yeah. Um, because of the bits of himself that he sees in him. But also specifically this fear that loving Giovanni opens him up to loving all men. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And that, you know, he fears he's going to become another man, like, on the beat chasing after lovers. And, like, there's a couple of scenes where, you know, while he's with Giovanni he sort of just sees a random man on the street and it's kind of like, ooh. And then he's like, no, I don't want this. I don't want to be attracted to men and have to deal with that in public. It's so gross. Yeah. And, you know, that's what we saw earlier in the bar scenes where, like, he found the whole song and dance and, you know, the flirting between the men just kind of gross as a performance. You know, it's, it's kind of like if, he, if he's going to be gay, he wants to just be in a gay relationship, but he can't conceptualize of how what that would look like because of the society that he's in and the kind of community that he feels trapped by yeah yeah i think that comes back to that conversation he has with giovanni where he says like you want me to be the woman and i don't want to be trapped in this room forever being the woman and giovanni is kind of like i'm not talking about you being the woman i'm talking about i think he says you know i'm not talking about what i want i'm talking about who i want being Mm. like who i want is you it's not what i want is a woman Mm. be that woman a man or a woman but you know yeah, I think it, it comes back to that thing that David can only conceptualise because that's what society's presented to him, a very narrow view of gay relationships where there's a masculine partner and a feminine partner and they're part of this kind of scene which is all about, a lot of it's kind of about really transactional sex and he hates that, partly mm. because of internalised homophobia but partly because also that's just not the kind of relationship he wants for himself. Mm. But he can't conceptualise a gay relationship between two equals where, you know, life looks different. And- and indeed, he can't conceptualize any relationship between two equals. That's true. But yeah, that that despair, the lack of a model for a long-term relationship mm, and yep. the notion that the gay lifestyle is one of constant fleeting promiscuity. Uh, again, it's a stereotype, but it's one presented by Baldwin rather than an inherent truth about gay men. It's an objectionable reality of the society in which they're in. Yeah, yeah. It's not just, oh yeah, gay men are all bitchy, sleeping around, etc. It's James Baldwin saying, hey... Society's built this space for gay men and that's how they have to exist to be in this space. Mm. But they could be other things too. Mm. But I think, uh, you know, we've kind of flagged this idea of uh, David's views on women not being super healthy. (laughs) And so I want to talk about his relationship with women in this book, Mm -hmm. specifically with Hella, who's his fiancée at the start of the book and who we learn is fleeing to America. We later learn that's because she found him in a gay bar with a man. Mm Mm-hmm. And mostly because of the fact that he'd been so dishonest with her, leaves him. Yeah. And yeah, I think the way that Hella is trapped by social circumstance in very much the same kind of ways that uh, David and Giovanni are, and she's kind of equally unable to think past, you know, the sort of stereotypes of women, partially because of the societal imposition on her you know she's clearly got a lot of like self-hatred for what the lifestyle that she has been leading which is one of you know sort of a free independent woman who goes around and travels and does her own things and you know she kind of feels like she's good for nothing but bearing children and the idea that she's so trapped and the idea that david is so trapped and unable to contemplate being gay is anything other than shameful flings is to some extent a failure of society and to some extent a failure of imagination on both their parts. Mm, But I think the failure of imagination is a failure of society. Like, society has not given them any model for what they could be. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a line in here that's just like, wow, the biggest, like, gender performance (laughs) uh, summary I've ever seen where she says... um, 
you know, sort of when they're like, okay, yep, we're going to get married. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to write to your dad and get money and tell him about me and everything's yep. going to be fine. She says, from now on, I can have a wonderful time complaining about being a woman, but I won't be terrified that I'm not one. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And wow, did that strike home. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I was like, holy crap. Uh, you know, that kind of fear of the unknown, of life outside of societal norms. Mm. That permeates every aspect of that book, but if the, anything is kind of a mission statement, it's that one. Yeah. And I think that's the whole direction that David and Hamlet go on together, where they're kind of like, do we want to get married? And basically what's happening is they're going, should we get married? And David's going, well, I'm gay. Obviously, I don't have this conversation directly because it's not <laughs> out to her. He goes, well, I'm gay. And she's sort of going, well, I want to leave this independent life. But both those things are so scary to them that they fall back on what they know, even though what they know is so horrific to them. Mm. Yeah, once we sort of get to the part of the book where Hella has returned and, you know, David and Giovanni's relationship has fallen apart, we sort of get towards the last bit of the book. Before I talk about the ending, I just want to talk about this one-liner from Jacques, um, <laughs> where he just absolutely shreds David in regards to his cruel treatment of Giovanni. Uh, he says, One book, he said, finally, that you can surely spare yourself the trouble of reading is the Marquis de Sade. Which is <laughs> just... <laughs> absolute annihilation yeah (laughs) yeah so the ending of the book has a lot going on there's a lot of social commentary about the media's rehabilitation of guillaume uh and giovanni's demonization by the french press due to guillaume's prestigious family name and giovanni being a poor foreigner and that's it's pretty incisively done i would say Mm. yeah um it seems like it feels very realistic and very modern in terms of how the news develops a narrative over the course of a couple of weeks about yeah. a big story. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about how there's a lot of wealthier gay men in Paris who are terrified that this will lead to, like, them all being outed mm. and blaming everything on Giovanni and posi- positioning Guillaume as more of a, like, figure of tragedy. Yeah. And someone who was manipulated and, you know, he was a good guy, whatever, um, even though he was a monster, is a way for them to kind of escape prejudice. Yeah, yeah. It's very much that, although Giovanni does murder Guillaume, I don't think there's a discussion in the book that he may be innocent, Mm. he very much becomes a scapegoat for the whole kind of queer scene and all the uncomfortable power and wealth and race and class dynamics in that scene. They're just kind of like, no, Giovanni was just a foreigner, he just came in, he killed a guy, like, there's nothing wrong with the rest of us, don't look at us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the fact that Giovanni is Italian is very, like, you know, obviously Italians are much less prejudiced against in Mm. our time, but if we're talking about the 50s... I wonder, I don't know actually how it was in France. Like, obviously, they depict racism against Italians in France, but mm. I know, like, in the USA, for example, when they talked about white people at that time, they didn't include Italians in mm. that. Mm. And, you know, they understood, you know, the white race and then other races, including the Italian race. So I wonder if white French people saw the Italian people as being a different race. Yeah, I think what Baldwin is doing is kind of positioning mm. them in the way that they are positioned in American yeah. race discourse. But he does make a nod to kind of more how Europeans interpret that, which is talking about Italians being, like, overly emotional and, Mm. like, um, you know, like, that kind of, it's not quite racism, but it is often, like, sort of looking down on them for being more primitive and emotional. It's definitely xenophobia. It's definitely xenophobia. Yeah. And, you know, both uh, Giovanni and... David engage in quite a bit of like 
oh yeah, all women from this country are like this, and all yeah. men from this country are like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, with Americans, with Italians, with the French, like, they're doing it to everyone, but obviously uh, Giovanni is socially mm. in a precarious position, yeah. in part because of his status as an undocumented migrant. Yeah. And yeah, so the, the book ends with uh, David receiving news from Jacques of the date of uh, Giovanni's execution. Mm-hmm. David's completely lost by the end of the book. He sort of, you know, he doesn't have Giovanni, he doesn't have Hella, and he tries to tear up this last news of Giovanni, but the paper swirls in the wind and some of it comes back on his face, which is a very, like, on-the-nose way of sort of saying you can't destroy your trauma, you can't run away from it, especially mm. when it's rooted in denial of your own identity. Yeah. Um, you need to kind of embrace that and work through it to move past it. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's quite intense, but quite good. And I think um, there's a really, really interesting point to be made about this ending that sort of brings us to the subject of David's bisexuality. Mm-hmm. I think there's a great extent to which David's bisexuality and the uneven social construction of it is at the core of his issues, because he cannot conceptualize, as we've sort of reiterated several times already, settling down with a man due to social constraints, but the stifling limits on women, both in his own mind and Hella's, make it impossible for him to accept a life with a woman either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he thinks he wants a life with a woman because he envisages this really stereotypical life with a woman, mm. but at the same time... I don't feel like that life is ever realistic to him. Yeah, like, and I don't think he even wants it. Yeah. Really, he th- deep he, down. He envisions it in such a way that he's distanced from it because it's mm. so stereotyped and idealised. Mm, mm. And there is a really interesting sign of hope at the end of the novel. Um, writer Brett Beeman points out that when David ends his kind of self-imposed exile um, in the, mm. like small house in the south of France at the end of the novel. He sees a group of women and men awaiting the morning bus who are very vivid beneath the awakening sky. And the vividness here, according to Beeman, suggests that David is really looking at others for the first time, and the fact that the scene includes both women and men is telling. As Reed Woodhouse notes, Baldwin has been careful to put both men and women in his final tableau, as if to say, the combination of male and female is precisely what makes for a real, not illusory world. Okay, I would, you know, Sometimes you hear about symbolism in a book and you're like, come on. But given that that's the same scene where the letter blows back in his face, yeah, that probably is a point that Baldwin's making. Yeah, I want to read you a couple of quotes from Baldwin at Mm. this point because I feel they probably fit in quite well here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So there's one about sexuality where he says, homosexual, bisexual, heterosexual are 20th century terms which, for me, really have very little meaning. I've never been able to discern exactly where the barriers are. Life being what life is, passion being what passion is, and learning being what that is. Uh, is something he said in a mm. 1965 interview. And there's a second quote here that I think especially applies to this ending and kind of convinces me of the intentionality of it. Yeah. Where he says, We are all androgynous, not only because we are all born of a woman impregnated by the seed of a man, but because each of us, helplessly and forever, contains the other, male and female, female and male, white and black and black and white. We are a part of each other. Okay. That's very interesting because I think like, you know, this is a book about sexuality, but taken with that knowledge, like it's also, I guess I said this before, it's also a book about gender where like David's so hung up on being a man that he's really scared of anything that is not being a man. And that includes homosexuality, that includes effeminacy, like that includes being supported by another man, that includes all kinds of stuff. And I mean, Baldwin is very explicitly saying that you've got to get away from that fear. 
and embrace things that are not being a man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that, like, Giovanni, once again, as he presents to David the idea that they could live an equal relationship, he also presents to David the idea that he needs to break away from understanding himself as interested in men or interested in women or so forth. Like, mm. Giovanni talks about himself and he says, you know, I'm not interested in women now. I have been in the past. Maybe I will be again. And he sees that as very fluid. And he also fights against the idea that David has to choose between him and Hella, which is obviously like a very personal fight for him. But I think it also is like, hey, you don't have to choose between being with a man or being with a woman. And Giovanni very much just kind of says, why should it be an issue? Mm. Why can't you do both? Yeah. And he has this great sort of rant about it sort of being like a making such a drama of the whole thing yeah yeah sort of being like you know just be chill and that's um very much a kind of articulation of this general attitude that permeates the novel of that is you know a very stereotypical thing uh with american and european writers Mm. writing about america and europe of america being very puritan and very like earnest and very things must be one or the other um and europe being far more permissive and far more kind of you know let's sort something out yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think he very explicitly says, like, to arrange la vie pratique is very simple. It only has to be done. That kind of idea that, like, you only have to sort it out. You only have to figure out who's involved and what they want. Mm. It doesn't have to be about gender. It doesn't have to be about sexuality. Mm-hmm, it can mm-hmm. just be about the individuals and what they want. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting coming from someone who's also so misogynistic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's kind of, I feel an implication there where there's a bit of hypocrisy in Giovanni, Mm. um, where he's sort of saying, yeah, we can just sort of sort it out. But that's because he knows that, you know, like in his mind, at least, uh, he's the man and therefore the women will just kind of do what they do. Yeah. You know, as as I said earlier, he talks about women as like forces of nature. He's like, the women will just do what they do. But as long as they know what, you know, what's going on. We'll make an arrangement that'll work. And it and it is, again, it gets into these like competing models of, you know, the healthy and the depraved, where like David leans more towards unhealthy manifestations of his sexuality because mm-hmm. he's repressed, but Giovanni is also unhealthy in his manifestations of yeah. his sexuality, even as he makes some really good and articulate points about sexual fluidity because of how misogynist he is. And, you know, it's just kind of uh I feel as with a lot of things, it's it's like characters being unable to push fully past Mm. the social norms and i mean you see this like i haven't really brought up uh david's relationship with his father very much yeah but like the fact that david finds the fact that his father sleeps around a lot grotesque and like hates him after he finds Mm. that out and yet he then proceeds to model that exact behavior and like the, the novel is very explicit about david like his father's an alcoholic who sleeps around a lot and he's an alcoholic who sleeps around a lot. yeah and like yeah he very explicitly is like my father drank and then i drank i was drink driving and crashed a car my father drink drives like he he draws those parallels himself Mm. Mm. yeah Mm. i think that that point you made about how giovanni kind of says we'll sort something out with the implication with and the women will just you know fall into it they'll mm-hmm. do what they do is interesting with the contrast of when hella comes back from spain and david kind of says oh hella was talking about something she never really talked about before feminism being an, i can't remember if he used the word feminism but you know being an independent woman the role mm-hmm. of women in society and it's just like it's like david being like oh yeah i've forgotten to think about this women are people <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, I mean, he absolutely does. Yeah. Uh, forget to think about women as people, as full fledged people. Yeah. Um, Hell is kind of like this off screen concept. Mm. 
until suddenly she comes back. It's like, oh, I have to factor you into my life. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit now about the response to the novel. James Baldwin wrote five novels, I believe it is. Um, and this one, from all accounts, based on the articles I read, has had the least written about it. Certainly it mm. had had the least written about it when these people were writing. That may no longer be the case um, because I feel there has been a kind of critical reappraisal of it over mm-hmm. the years. But certainly initially it was, uh, you know, ign- routinely ignored or criticised uh, or, you know, sort of deemed lesser yeah. as one of his works. Um, and there's the extent to which this was because of homophobia, so um, African-American critics, notably Eldridge Cleaver and Amiri Baraka, savaged the book and Baldwin with homophobia and accusations of being a traitor to his race. Baldwin's response to this was to say, people invent categories in order to feel safe. White people invented black people to give white people identity. Straight cats invent faggots so that they can sleep with them without becoming faggots themselves. Mm. And this points to some of the sexual categorization of mid-late 20th century America that we've spoken about in other episodes and in this episode, you know, where some men who slept with men were not part of queer culture or society and therefore the distinction that words like faggot created. And, you know, we talked about how David feels like he is separate from the gay bar scene that he's a part of. Yeah. This gives us a clear illustration, like from that quote, that while David is in some ways an author insert and obviously represents some of Baldwin's experiences, he's filled with more self-loathing and internalized homophobia, and perhaps he represents Baldwin's past self or the reflections he saw of himself and others. And certainly, you know, it's clear from that quote that Baldwin disagrees with David on a lot of points. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like this comes back to a thing we've talked about a lot in other contexts on this podcast of the way in which different aspects of the queer community have distanced themselves from other aspects to be like, you know, for example, in like marriage equality debates, oh, we're just like you. We just want to get married and live quote unquote normal lives in our little house with our kids or whatever. We're not like those deviant queers who may be, you know, gender transgressive or who may be polyamorous or who may be any other thing that is Mm -hmm. not considered fitting within the norm. You're seeing the same thing here with race, with the reaction of these other black authors to James Baldwin, like, hey, we're trying to prove that we're just like normal white society, except our skin happens to be a different color. I don't know about these specific authors, so if I'm misrepresenting them, I apologize, but that attitude definitely existed. Like, we're trying to prove that we're just like these nice middle-class white people. We don't need you saying, oh, but some of us are gay or some of us are, you know, whatever else we might be. That's interesting because I feel like that's to some extent the truth, but Mm -hmm. um, something that I saw quite a lot was this idea of homosexuality as being a middle to upper class white thing. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, And that's kind of where a lot of this hatred and you know um homophobia directed at baldwin comes from is this Mm -hmm. perspective of him as a race trader who's like dated white men okay and therefore like has become effectively white himself and like obviously that's complete crap but yeah that was some of the stuff that was and i'm not going to go into um some of the quotes that i read from these black writers because they were you, you know describing homosexuality in very disgusting ways yeah yeah you know everyone's heard those arguments i don't need to repeat them 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the complete opposite of what I was saying, but it's also, you know, a thing that we have seen presented elsewhere. Yeah. 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 So we've kind of just gotten into the discussion of race, um, and obviously David and James Baldwin are separated by the fact that one of them is white and one of them is black. And to some extent, this novel was Baldwin's attempt to remove himself from the constraints of being a capital B black author. Yeah. And, you know, some of the pushback he got from publishers was this idea of, like, what are you doing getting out of your lane and not just writing a novel about racism and race politics? Yeah. And, yeah, scholar Aliyah Abdur-Rahman describes how there was a general trend in 20th century African-American writing towards making important political works that promote explicitly black racial uplift and highlight the material impacts of racism as, like, better and more important than other kinds of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she acknowledges the undoubted value and empowerment of such works, but points out that this led to a devaluation of works which didn't fit into these kind of prescriptive standards. So, yeah, there was a perspective that they were not black enough if they were writing more personal works or works that dealt with the inner lives and conflicts not driven by racism that black people faced. Mm-hmm. Um, and she points out that more often than not, those exiled have been women and queers of colour. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, this specifically uh, is the case with James Baldwin, and there's some writing about how he was somewhat unique in terms of male black American writers, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of dealing more with the interior lives of women in particular, but also just generally dealing with those kind of smaller scale conflicts, which was tended to be more of the sort of women's domain in terms of writing. Oh, okay, so the men are more writing kind of activist-focused works that really look at black experience mm. as a more broad idea. Or at least that's the perspective, right? And, you know, yeah. to some extent, if you're a woman or a queer person, people are going to focus in more on those elements of your writing and perceive it as being less politically relevant. Yeah. I mean, if, for example, Giovanni's Room was written by a woman, I'm sure it would talk a lot more about the presentation of Hella in Giovanni's Room and what that means and what that's saying about women. Mm. Whereas, as is, we kind of go, so this is about misogyny. It's about how, you know... There's no place for independent women in society, but we don't make it the crux of the book. Mm. So, yeah, this kind of exile from academic discourse occurred a little bit with Giovanni's Room, uh, despite the obvious ways in which race plays into the narrative. You know, we see that David's first youthful fling is with the dark-skinned Joey, uh, who comes from a poorer neighbourhood than him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's definitely ways in which uh, David's privilege plays into that. Like, I, th- I think it talks about how Joey, like, is kind of forced to leave the school because David is mean to him. And it's obviously a relationship with a power imbalance. Like, once David sleeps with Joey and he becomes uncomfortable with it, he then reacts to that by exerting power over Joey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, later with Giovanni, like, his Italian heritage and resultant treatment by French society is a clear mirror of American society and its treatment of African Americans. Yeah. And and moreover, David himself is white in a way that is specifically associated with colonialism. Um, so if we go back to that first, very first page in his introduction as a character, it reads, My face is like a face you've seen many times. My ancestors conquered a continent, pushing across death-laden plains until they came to an ocean which faced away from Europe into a darker past. I'll be honest, that really threw me when I started this book, because I assumed that since James Baldwin was black, he was writing about a black man. And I read that first paragraph and I I was like, I just cannot comprehend what you're saying right now because I assumed it was a black character. And I was like, what does this mean? And I was like, oh, it means you're white. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it means, like, I think he's doing something really interesting there where he's saying, I'm writing about a white character. Mm. But to be clear, 
race is still relevant here and the yeah. fact that this character is white is a deliberate choice and i'm kind of you know like the fact that he talks about it, it's a face that you've seen many times before mm. like he's trying to subvert traditions of white writing by writing a white character that he's the ultimate author over yeah, yeah. Like he's saying, you know, I'm writing a white everyman, but I'm doing that consciously in a way mm. that a lot of people writing a white everyman are just being like, well, my main character will be, you know, a guy, just a guy. And they haven't really thought about, well, what does it mean that I've chosen my main character to be a white man? Yeah. And I and I think the fact that James Walden is clearly preoccupied with what it means to be an American and, you know, David is preoccupied by this in the novel, but then James Baldwin is also preoccupied by this in his life like he goes to france for nine years and then he comes back and when he comes back it's for the civil rights movement yeah yeah and i believe that is when like kind of the first time in his life when he visits the american south where his mother fled from uh during Mm -hmm. the great northern migration you know that's that is kind of him consciously choosing to re-engage with the past and re-engage with what being an american means and what an american identity looks like yeah yeah and i mean you can see that throughout giovanni's room kind of the precursor that like david is very much running away from america and running away from having to engage with what american identity looks like to him what an american life looks like to him like you had that scene where he goes to the post office and he sees all the other americans and he hates them Mm. and he just hates them because they're american and he doesn't want to engage with what that means yeah yeah the book is clearly preoccupied with american identity um and you know this idea of linking that to colonialism is kind of the way in which uh, Baldwin sort of justifies the fact that it's got a Parisian setting. He's kind of taking these two American characters, David and Hella, and putting them in Europe to kind of throw them back to the origins of a lot of the trauma that they have and a lot of the, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of gender roles that they have and, you know, societal expectations that are cursing them in their lives. You know, those originated in Europe. Yeah. And they've come to America and now these characters have come back. And yeah, you kind of see the origins of American Puritanism and you see how, you know, there's very much a contrast, as we've talked about many times in this episode, between the Americans and the Europeans and the specific way that he talks about that, where he talks about the soapy Americans mm. um, and as compared with the earthy Europeans. Yeah. So yeah, overall, this was not what I would say a pleasant novel to read. <laughs> no. But I did feel really deeply the despair of David, of Giovanni, of Hella, and of even, even of Jacques, uh, and most of all the despair of James Baldwin struggling to reconcile their identities with the world around them. It's hard to tell sometimes where the characters and author differ, and certainly I suspect Baldwin and I would disagree on many things. But this book feels honest, and I did find it a really captivating portrayal of a particular community in a particular time and place. Mm-hmm. So with that, we've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you can check out Queer as Fact on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. If you'd like to support this podcast financially, we have a Redbubble store where you can purchase merchandise such as Queer as Fact shirts and mugs, and a Patreon where you can enjoy perks such as voting on episode topics like this one and access to our monthly newsletter. If you would like to support us in a non-financial capacity, uh, please leave us a a review on platforms like Apple Podcasts, or just share our podcast with your friends and family. All of this information can be found on our website, queerisfact.com, alongside source posts if you'd like to read more about our episode topics. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.